Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. So did you guys see this terrible ad uh, from the mattress company in San Antonio uh, for their uh, Twin Towers sale on September 11th? Oh, God. Where, <laughs> like, that is in such <laughs> cosmically bad. It's really, it's really it, it something. It is, but also mattresses. Right. Have mattress sales also, like, I get it, like Labor Day mattress sale, which you could have done it last weekend, but really? A has Susan, has Susan ever told you the, the her ultimate uh uh 9-11 faux pas I uh, story so, tell it 10 years ago um uh no five years ago on the 10th anniversary of 9-11 um, i was in a meeting in an office that happens to abut uh the twin towers site and um you know because it happened to be on, on the day you know people were sort of sharing the reflections of 9-11 and being there etc uh, so I'm sitting in, in the office, uh, you know, in this big, beautiful, uh, you know, New York office looking over New York Harbor. And this person's telling, you know, this really sort of moving, harrowing story about sort of the experience of being there at 9-11. <clears throat> and then he pauses and he looks out the window at the boats going by. And the words spill out of his mouth. You can't beat the view. <laughs> Meaning, of course, that there is no longer buildings blocking his oh. view. Wow. And it was one of those moments where the minute it came out of his mouth, his just the look of sheer mortification of, oh, my God, he could not believe he'd said it. <laughs> it was just so horribly terrible. Well, um, but it, it's it's something about the triumph of the human yeah, spirit looking for the that you can side. You know, make you know lemonade out that's of a, it. That's a really beautiful take. You on, know where that partner um, is now? <laughs> Selling mattresses. Oh. Excellent. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the Too Soon for Mattress Sales editions. I'm Shane Harris of The Daily Beast, here in our... Sylvan Studio, our fauna studio. The jungle? No, there's no fauna. The jungle? Oh, there's no fauna. It's, it's only the, foliage. It, it's I always get foliage and fauna mixed up. <laughs> yeah, it's it's Aren't our we new fauna? our new and improved yeah, we're jungle fauna. studio. Yeah, it's very nice. We're, I, we're, I count as fauna. Do you? Yes. So, we right? are the fauna in we the, are the flora fauna. and fauna studio. I thought fauna had to be like four legged. I actually have no idea. No, um, fauna just means animals. No. Well, then I suppose that's us. I think we count. Yeah. yeah. All right. <clears throat> well, us animals are here hanging out. I'm here with my friends Tamara Coppin, Ben Wittis, and Susan Hennessy. Hi, guys. Hey, Shane. Hey. Shane. We're recording this on a Friday, so a little bit later than usual. Everybody getting ready for the weekend. Post-Labor Day, we are back in action. Washington is in full swing. It still feels like the middle of August right now, which is bringing me down a little bit. But that's okay. We've had a week of big news. Uh, this week on the show, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump spar over who'd be the better commander-in-chief. The FBI releases its report on Hillary Clinton's email server and what has changed and what hasn't since the 9-11 attacks, uh, plus some Mattress sales. Mattress sales. That's what's changed. 20% they really off. have. Wow. <laughs> They're way different than before 9-11. <laughs> um, let's start with uh, 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 the Commander-in-Chief Forum, which aired on NBC and MSNBC uh, this week, and Trump and Clinton both gave some other remarks on national security as well. This was kind of a town hall 
forum where uh, uh, vets and I think uniformed service members as well were in attendance. No, and, it was just vets. Just vets. Okay, just vets. Sorry. Uh, and were allowed to ask questions in, separately of the two candidates. They were told not to mention each other, although they didn't quite Both violated those rules. That. Yeah, we can talk about that. Um, so uh, <clears throat> a little bit of a different kind of take on the town hall style debate, but all geared around questions of national security, fitness to be commander in chief, fitness to lead. Um, you know, Ben, who won? Well, I suppose it depends what the, you know, what the grading uh, system is, right? If the question is who won on, you know, having a conversation about national security policy, the answer is Hillary Clinton. Uh, if the question is who won on, you know, not uh, saying completely ridiculous things about Vladimir Putin, about uh, whether he or she knows more about ISIS than the generals, the answer would certainly have to be Hillary Clinton. On the other hand, you it's know, great on a curve, though. Well, it's not a question of a curve. It's a it's a question of whole different axes, yeah. right? If the question is uh, who won because the other one spent all her time or much of her time being grilled about her email uh, rather than about national security policy, then the answer would be Donald Trump. And if, and I suspect if the answer is who walked away more pleased with their performance or whose campaign walked away more pleased with their performance and who walked away more frustrated, the answer might also be Donald Trump. I, um, I actually – I have to say I, I find this phase of the campaign is where I feel like the, there's the biggest gap in the interests of the political press who cover the campaign – because their interest is in covering the horse race dimension and the public interest in the campaign, which is understanding in greater detail the policy ideas and and inclinations of the two candidates. This is the opening of the debate season in the campaign. This is where candidates are supposed to be compelled to go beyond their own talking points, to answer difficult questions, to get into the details and uh, to show some substance, some policy substance to the American people on whatever the issues are in a given session. And instead, we had both because of the moderator, but also I think because of the bizarre nature of this year's campaign, we had a debate that wasn't a debate and a, a that was supposedly about policy, but didn't in fact contain much policy substance at all, in which one candidate wasn't allowed to talk about the substantive ideas that she has on the issues, and the other candidate could say blatantly contradictory things that have no policy content at all, like, I have a secret plan, but it's not finished yet, um, well, and I'm not going to tell you what it is, but maybe I'll like the general's plan better. And that's the policy right. substance. Well, no, no, and, and, it's, and it's quite worse than that because it's also – um, saying in an unchallenged fashion, I did oppose the Iraq war at the time and citing as an example of that, uh, you know, an interview he gave in 2004, long after the Iraq war had started to go bad. So look, I mean, one of the problems is, as as you just say, that these these candidates are having completely different conversations. Hillary Clinton is having a, a, a twofold conversation one is uh, one element of which is purely about her email 
And the only national security dimension of that at all is whether uh, her handling of email somehow is uh, disqualifying uh, on security grounds. Uh, and the second element is, you know, a set of policy questions that are recognizably the kind of questions you would ans ask and expect a candidate to answer in the national security space. But Trump also has a completely bifurcated conversation, and it's a totally different conversation. It's one element of which is the latest reiteration of the crazy bombastic statement that he's made on X issue, whatever it is. Putin is a is a strong leader. Uh, I I never I always opposed the Iraq War, but I always said if you're gonna do the Iraq War, take the oil. Right, the sort of latest re reiteration of these sort of crazy things. And the second element is that the press is obsessed with getting him to square the circle of his past irreconcilable statements, which is a total mugs game because, yes, Donald Trump has contradicted himself a thousand million times. And so he never gets asked the serious questions because they're so interested in in – 1998, you said this about immigration. And in 2007, you said this about immigration. Which is it, Mr. Trump? You know, so, yeah, like, I, I agree that there are like, certainly there are you could take sort of split the the uh, the forum in the middle. And it was like two totally different events. I mean, it was hard to even reconcile them as, as the same thing, much less um, two presidential candidates being interviewed. Um, but I do think they uh, both had really bad moderators, though. <laughs> that's the one thing they had in common. Um, you know, uh, the the result of which is that there's actually – I think there is some interest, interesting things to say about um, sort of Hillary Clinton's answers um, and also the questions, right? Really the sort of um, – the email stuff aside, but, but questions about um, – uh, you know, the perception that she's really very hawkish and, and sort of her, uh, you know, is she going to take this very strong kind of interventionist position around the world? And, and how does she think about deploying troops? And uh, I think there's some some interesting things in um, in the fact that those questions are being asked and in her answers. Um, but then I, I do think actually, though, you know, at this point in the campaign, you do have to start taking Trump's policies um, for what they are and start discussing them, um, because otherwise we are going to continue to be in this loop. Um, so the major policy position, sort of national security position that he put forward last night, and then he's repeating, uh, you know, he's made this comment before, is this one about we should have taken the oil. Um, so that's really interesting, because um, the idea that we had entered the Iraq war uh, in order to uh, to take the oil was sort of a, a left-wing conspiracy theory, right? That like no blood for oil. Exactly. Right. That, that we had, you know, um, the, that the Bush administration had fabricated evidence about weapons of mass destruction as a pretense to enter and sort of take the oil. Um, it's remarkable that the Republican candidate some 15 years later has adopted that position, the conspiracy theory position as it having been a good idea, right? So it's not just that, oh, you know, you people are ridiculous, you you liberals, you know, with your stupid oil position. It's, yeah, uh, we, you know, we should have gone in to take the oil. And our big failure was that that conspiracy turned out not to be true. Um, <laughs> and so I think having actually like, like a real conversation about why you don't invade countries in order to take their oil and why I'm um, extricating yourself from, from the Middle East and, and from conflicts 
zones and um, withdrawing natural resources in those areas actually on, on policy Susan, terms is you, a terrible you're idea. Just, you're just being soft. That's true. And, um, and you're not really interested in making America great again. Mm -hmm. If If you believed in making America great again, you would want us to do military overseas operations for purposes of resource extraction. Mm -hmm. And that's what's going to make America great again. It's very efficient. It's, 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 it made Britain great okay. for like a while. And it's, but... one of the thing, it's one of the things that actually, let's, let's be honest about it, I am actually right now stating the position of a major party candidate for president. Okay, but in all seriousness, and I take your point, Susan, I think we do – we do have to get beyond for the gotcha stuff, but more particularly, we have to take what Trump says at his word and take it seriously and deal with it seriously. And all his words. And all his words. But I think what, in addition to that, I'm finding dismaying in this national, in the poverty of our national security debate in this presidential campaign is that here we are after Iraq, after Afghanistan, now launched again in on a war in the Middle East against ISIS, um, although it's so far only has a few thousand American uh, forces involved. Um, and we need to get beyond this artificial dichotomy about hawks versus doves and strong versus weak. Um, because, first of all, we've just had eight terms of a Democratic president who came in talking about ending wars, but who is engaged in drone strikes and, you know, global counterterrorism operations that traditional, you know, Democratic national security perspectives would have found unthinkable. And we have a Republican candidate who, you know, seems to... Um, seems to have a very hands-off approach to a lot of international problems. Mercantilist. Sort of the, mercantilist, but certainly not hawkish in the traditional if you were a sense. Dictionary, you would say that. And I, I feel like we have learned as a country a lot of lessons about intervention, about use of force, about state building, and we should be able to have a better conversation at this point about these questions. And yet this year of all years, we're having the worst quality conversation I can imagine. So this leads me to wonder, because this debate was set up where Clinton and Trump were not on the stage at the same time together, they were questioned separately, told not to mention one another, which they both broke those rules. But eventually these two are going to be na next on the stage together. They're going to be asked questions about national security and foreign policy. I think at least one debate is devoted to those issues, as it often is. So are we going to see that quality of discussion that, you know, Tamara is saying we need? Or is it going to be, you know, Donald Trump just blasting Hillary Clinton for her decisions and choices, whatever they may be real or imagined, Hillary Clinton just waiting for Donald Trump to implode or actually positing a real policy that she wants to see. I mean, I don't have a lot of confidence that we're going to get much deeper when the two of these people actually get on stage and debate one another on these issues. I, I agree with that. And I think I think part of the reason is that one of the candidates is incapable of a serious national security conversation or a serious policy conversation. Right. That's just, you know, some people roll with policy and some right. people just don't do policy. And Trump is you know, is somebody who doesn't actually know how to talk about policy at all. On the other hand, you know, the only thing people seem to want to talk about Hillary Clinton up to, up to Hillary Clinton about is her emails and her vote in the Iraq war. And the funny thing is there, it's the same conversation with both. In both cases, she just says, yeah, I made a mistake. I wouldn't do it again. And 
I don't know how many times you can elicit somebody to say that. It's just not a very interesting conversation. Whatever you think of the Iraq vote, whatever you think, you're not going to get her to say more. And by the way, uh, you know, you can make your own judgment about how good or bad or corrupt or horrible or nice or fluffy her decisions were in that regard. But they're you know, it's it's a waste of time to 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 have her there for half an hour to talk about national security policy and spend 20 minutes of it. So she's, of course, then it seems, hoping that that's all people ask her about. So people like me who are the moderators, I'm sure she's just hoping, please ask me for the 800th time about my email and the Iraq war vote, and I will give you the same answer and we can just move well, on. Okay, and be done. So as a journalist, can I ask you a question about this? Because watching Matt Lauer, I actually, he's been widely panned um, for the way he played this, but it actually reminded me of the Republican primary debates and raised a question for me about the broadcast media and the role that they're playing in this campaign and in debates specifically, which is they have an interest in um, getting good ratings. They have an interest in ginning up apparent conflicts and the policy conflicts even if you can suss out what Trump's policy positions are well enough to elucidate them, policy conflicts are complicated. They're not very interesting. They don't grab people's attention. And this stuff, frankly, is better television. Just like the the ridiculous personal back and forth in the Republican primary was great reality show television. So do you, I mean, do you think at all that that the broadcast journalists who are sitting in these chairs feel that tug? Oh, yeah. I mean, if I think if you look particularly at the debates that were on the cable networks, the Republican debates especially, which are the ones that got vastly higher ratings, um, they absolutely felt that tug. And I, I don't know whether they were explicitly told to go out there and gin up these controversies and get people talking about the size of their hands and their genitals. But, like, clearly that's what they did and knew it would work. The reason I have some hope for the presidential and the vice presidential debates is – they're run by a commission on debates. They selected the moderators. I believe they are also broadcast on all stations without commercials. I think that's true. I'd have to look into that. But the, the commercial pressure may be less on those. And if that's the case, I'm hoping that what it will make for is, you know, an environment in which moderators do not feel like they have to basically create sound bites and segments to then replay ad nauseum on their networks, which is precisely what was happening. I mean, I'm, I'm very, very cynical about, I think I'm just very honest about the way that TV journalists have behaved in particular in this election. I think that there is much to be said and written about them as a category, um, and particularly the way they ran the debates, which I thought was not illuminating and pretty corrosive, actually. Well, not to defend the media. I feel like we're reversing roles here. But I, I do think they're also... A Shane I never defends broadcast media. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Radio, maybe, but... <laughs> um, but you know, I do actually think the, the media are being asked to fill a role that they've never been asked to uh, to do before. And, and they're, they're not, they're not uh, stepping up to the challenge. Um, but that's that the media is supposed to be um, sort of in the middle of two functioning halves, right? Um, we actually need two, uh, you know, not dysfunctional... Um, uh, 
essentially functional parties in order to get to those policy decisions because that they're supposed to be focusing on the issues for their constituencies. And like the candidates are supposed to be doing the like the initial framing work and then the media is supposed to come in on top of that. Um, because we're like one party has essentially imploded, um, the, the that sort of t uh, policy is in kind of free flow because there, there's just no anchor. Um, so I, I, you know, while I thought Matt Lauer was um, abysmal, um, I, I do think it's uh, it's maybe a little bit unfair to sort of put it all at their feet. Yeah. Um, but that's the only nice thing I'll say about the media. <laughs> on behalf of the media, we thank you. Thanks, um, Keep it up. So here we've been chastising journalists and others for talking about Hillary Clinton's email. And we're going to talk about Hillary Clinton's email. I feel like we made a pledge on this very okay. show to, quote, <clears throat> never discuss it again. No, no, no. We are not going to talk about Hillary Clinton's email. This differently. All right. Okay. Okay. What are so, technicality? Yeah. So the FBI last week released two um, very important documents. One was the roughly, I think, 40 or so page report by the FBI to the Department of Justice on the on basically laying out what it found in its investigation of Hillary Clinton and her staff's use of a private email server. And essentially, this was the report that accompanied the recommendation not to prosecute Hillary Clinton. It also released what's known as a Form 302, which is the notes from the interview by FBI agents. Not the notes, the, a memorandum. Sorry, a memorandum. It's a memorandum. Yeah, exactly. memorandum That's there. right, a memorandum. Basically documenting a, a rather pretty much contemporaneous document of the conversation uh, itself. Um a question I have about this, so it's not just about the email server, because frankly, they didn't really find much, although we can talk a little bit about the new stuff. But <clears throat> um, this seemed to me, if I'm just taking off my journalist hat, which is the hat that I wear when I always want to read all the emails and read all the reports and everything, um, like a really dangerous precedent that Releasing you... Releasing the memo, you mean? Yeah. I mean, we're talking here about someone, put aside the fact that she is the Democratic presidential nominee and a former secretary and a public figure. We're talking about a U.S. citizen who was subjected to a very lengthy law enforcement investigation that ended in a decision not to charge her with any crime. And the FBI is now releasing the entirety of its, not the entirety, but basically the report, which you would never see if it, it, in the case of somebody who was not prosecuted. That just seems to me like we're, this was a really unprecedented move. The FBI recognized it was unprecedented. They had their reasons for doing it, but just seems really dangerous. And, Adam Schiff, who's the top Democrat on the House Intelligence Committee, talked about this and said, look, you're now creating a cause for in the future Congress to ask for information on all kinds of investigations that could have been ginned up for perceived political reasons or that could have political benefit for putting that information out publicly. It just seems like this was perhaps an expedient move, but in the long term, really not a smart one. Well, so... I believe the public record will back me up on this, that the first person to raise civil liberties issues about the way uh, the FBI investigation had treated Hillary Clinton was me. Um, and there was a lengthy post at, from the time of Jim Comey's testimony where I raised some of these same concerns um, and, you know, acknowledging the Bureau's that in the context of this investigation, it may have been the right thing to do, uh, noted that it's an extremely dangerous precedent. Um, I think the specific release of these particular documents um, doesn't especially aggravate that problem. Um, there's not that much in doesn't there. It doesn't help it, though, does it? It doesn't help it, but 
remember that that Hillary Clinton requested that they be made public. And so, you know, th- th- to the extent that there's a Privacy Act problem associated with the release of material about you as the subject of an investigation, she did really waive that in in this case. I think the much bigger problem is having the FBI director go out and uh, and dish in front of Congress on and and in just in a public statement um, at answering detailed questions about the conduct underlying conduct of an unindicted subject of an investigation, and that does bother me a lot. Um, well, can I push back on that a little bit? Because I think there are two mitigating factors here. This isn't just any individual, and it's it, this is not somebody who was a private citizen when these actions took place. This is somebody who was a sitting public official when the behavior that was under investigation took place. So that's, I think, one so important... What? That that means that there is a legitimate public interest in having details of that person's behavior as revealed by the investigation because they were a public official acting in a public capacity. Okay, so that's a really interesting policy proposition, but it isn't the way the U.S. criminal investigative system works or has ever worked. And, you know, that's the way inspectors general work, that if you're a public official and the inspector general – uh, investigates you, they write a report about it. But the FBI generally is not in the business of writing reports about people's conduct. But they- that is the structure of, of sort of the FOIA system, right? The, the um, FOIA does distinguish between, in, in terms of sort of broad rights to information or broad rights to privacy, they do distinguish between private people and, and, and people that are, are public officials or in the public interest. Right. I'm just saying if, if, if your view is that we get to know the details of an FBI investigation because the per- the subject or a subject is a public official, uh, you've just created an earthquake change in the way um, you in in the way criminal investigations involving public officials are conducted. We don't operate on the assumption that that I'm that not, stuff I'm is not arguing public. for the establishment of a rule of presumptively public. I'm saying that that's a mitigating factor against the privacy interest which normally governs the process. The second mitigating factor, of course, is that this person is running for the highest public office in the land, and there's a strong public interest in, first of all, having the investigation concluded and a determination made about potential criminal liability before the election, and if and you know, understanding the basis for that decision. Now, I don't think either of those things are absolutes. I don't think either of them are determinative. But I think when you take those two together and the fact that she, as you noted, asked for the information to be released, you know, even understanding the precedential concerns that Shane raised, I'm not so troubled by it. So your second point is, I think, the critical one. And so Comey actually in his testimony was asked about this problem, like, are are you creating a dangerous precedent? And I forget which of the Democrats on the committee asked him. Um, and he was pretty candid about it. He said, yes, I'm concerned about the precedent. And what he said is, I mean to limit this precedent 
to a situ- the situation that I hope will never arise again in which a former cabinet officer is selected as a major party candidate for president. And I'm willing to live with this precedent for that very rare, hopefully never again situation where such a person has a criminal investigation come to fruition right around the time of the convention. And he might have added you know, and the color of the wallpaper is green with purple polka dots, right? I mean, he he tried to imagine it in a very, very specific context. But my fear is that, with Shane, is that the way you just described it is actually the way people will, will remember it, which is, you know, she was a major public figure at the time, and so we're kind of entitled to know the details of what the FBI found out about her. And I think that would be just a catastrophically bad precedent if that's the result. Um, It would turn all criminal investigations of public officials into what we most hated about the independent counsel law. And and it would be – it would be awful. One thing I do think that's interesting, and I haven't really seen any coverage of this, is that one of the issues that actually is emerging as sort of a policy issue between the candidates is this question of transparency. Um, I actually think it's really significant that Hillary Clinton asked that these that the, the full record be made public, right? Um, you know, she gets a lot of flack both for sort of um, a perceived instinct towards secrecy, also for not, um, you know, having press conferences, uh, you know, and, and otherwise. This seems like a really, really meaningful um, volunteer step towards pretty radical transparency. I, I'm just I'm curious whether or not that's I'm especially because she didn't know what was in those documents. Right. So uh, Shane, as a member of the press, do you want if you really want to understand Hillary's emails, do you want the 302 file or do you want a press conference with her? This um, is the Shane represents the, the Shane, press. Yeah, Shane yeah, 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 speaks yeah. for the media. Yeah. So to that question, because I want to follow up on your other point too, but um Obviously, I would rather I would like to have both. But if I had to have one or the other, I would take the press conference, actually, because like, for instance, there was a moment in the 302 that revealed that she was asked. She was shown an email that had the C, the letter C next to it, indicating a classified you know, passage. And they said, well, what essentially, what did you think that this meant? Indicating a confidential. Passage, confidential, right. Which classified. confidential goes under the heading of class. But yes, confidential yes. in that case. Um, uh and she said, well, I don't know. It could have been like C as in a sequence, A, B, C. That is absolutely ridiculous. And in a press conference, she would have been, I mean, there would have been cackles in the audience when she said that. You could have followed up on it. You could say, how in the world could you think that? How could you stand here and think that we would believe that you as the Secretary of State thought that stood for like the letter C as in part three? So things like that I would I would like to see. Um her her grilled on in a in an adversarial public fashion with her lawyers not present um, and advising her on what to say and what not and the FBI having to follow its protocols and the like. Um, but to the question of you know it's it's so interesting you raise this question of transparency and you know Hillary Clinton asking for this information to be revealed, which is totally out of character with the way that the Clintons have behaved in their decades in public life, even when they were in Arkansas. I don't view that, though, as a shift. And, I mean, Ben, you made the point she didn't know what was in the documents, but she basically, I think, knew, had a good sense of what was in the documents. Well, she knew what she said. She knew what she said. But she didn't know how they'd recorded it. She didn't know how they'd recorded it, but I think that there was, I think there was a calculation here, and I'm projecting, you know, into the inner workings of Hillary Clinton and her lawyers and all the rest, but that it was 
much less risky to just go ahead and have this released than to try and fight it and be accused yet again of trying to hide information, even though she would have been completely justified, I think, in saying, absolutely not. I don't want the 302 and the report released. I was never charged with a crime. So I, I don't see this as a shift in transparency. I mean, in, in point of fact, I mean, you know, the emails that have been released are only the ones that she and her lawyers went through. Now, I'm not asserting a conspiracy here. I'm just saying the default for Hillary Clinton is to hold it all back. And just because she said, go ahead and release these documents, I don't think that marks a change so, in her MO. Well, so, I think, I think though, it's, it's interesting going back to what's Comey's interest and Comey's concern and what's the public interest and what's Hillary Clinton's interest. This seems to be a case where because Hillary Clinton is a candidate and there's an election date coming up, you know, it's with any scandal or issue um, of uncertainty in a campaign, you always want to rip the Band-Aid off. You want to get it all out, get it over with and move on. And that gave her an interest in transparency in this case that perhaps, you know, doesn't fit with past patterns. Um, and and so it seems to me that this is a, this is a situation where the public interest and the candidate's interest coincide. Um, and we we should kind of take that at face value this time and not worry about it so yeah. much. I just want to add one thing on this, on the substance, not on the emails. Uh, but she is getting a totally bad rap this week from the press on the substance of what's in those documents. And I actually think both the print press and the uh, broadcast media have a lot to answer for in the substance of the way those documents. I read the news stories over the weekend, you know, how many times she'd said she didn't know the answer uh, to questions, um, the alphabetical elements of the thing, the d deletions of the um, the use of a deleting program and the staff that smashed an iPhone with a hammer or an iPad with a hammer. Then I read the documents and most of these things, with the exception of the alphabetical stuff, uh, were completely innocuous in the context of the documents. Uh, and the distinction between what she had done herself or directed people to do and what staff just did in the routine management of her system that she had obviously no day-to-day -day interest in or management of was completely lost in the press. And the reason, you know, even people who are like, I think the world of and are really, really smart and interesting, uh, my, my dear friend Corey Shockey, who has been on this show, was on Mike Pesca's show the other day uh, and said that the reason that people, you know, military people really viscerally don't trust Hillary Clinton is because they know that if they had done the things with their emails that she did, they'd be in jail. And what Comey has said publicly is exactly the opposite of that, which is that nobody would go to jail for the things that Hillary Clinton did And when you read this 302 and when you read this report, and I say this as somebody who has never been a, an enthusiast for Hillary Clinton and am not today except by comparison to the person she's running against, nobody would go to prison. Nobody would be indicted 
for what's in that 302. And nobody, if the FBI found about them what they found in that 40-page memo, 47-page memo, nobody would be indicted for it. And I think, you know, the, what, what, Comey, what Comey said is a remarkably accurate set of summaries of what's in these materials, and his conclusions follow from them almost ineluctably from the facts as reported. But I, I, I take a different view on this because I also heard Comey at that testimony before the Government Reform Committee talking about the failure to indict David Petraeus and to prosecute him for a felony, which Comey clearly supported doing. And he seemed to be saying, at least the way Meaning I was he hearing it, the proce- he, he's yeah, wanted an indictment. Wanted an indictment. Wanted, thought he should have been charged with a felony. And there's been reporting by Adam Goldman and others that, that backs that up. Um, it seemed to me like he was saying, you know, if we could, if we were in a different world where David Petraeus had been charged with a felony for this, yes, we would have charged Hillary. No, Clinton. I don't, don't think, think that's so? what he was saying at all. I think he was saying he and there's a there's a lengthy colloquy between him and a member on this exact point, And he explains why there are aggravating factors in the Petraeus case that are totally absent here. And he identifies, you know, several. One is that Petraeus knew at the moment that he was giving that material to his mistress that it was illegal to do it. He even said, "There, be careful, this is code word classified stuff in here. Code word stuff. Um, we had the code word stuff edition of Rational Security yeah. once upon a time. And the second is that he then lied to the FBI about it. Yes. And so and, – and That's going to make the FBI director a little mad. And both of those elements are completely missing here. There is no evidence that Hillary Clinton knew she was mishandling this information. And there is no evidence that she was lying to the bureau or to the invest or to investigators about it, and that that is a huge difference between this situation and the Petraeus case. Well, and who among us has not wanted to smash their iPhone with a hammer? Honestly, it is a proper way to that, actually, dispose. Of- <laughs> I agree with you. Yeah, the, the smashing of the hammer was interpreted as she's trying to cover stuff up. Right, but it, I thought no, they're just they're just. That's decommissioning good. a device. Whenever so I saw the secure. reaction, yeah. I was like, God, whenever they find out that the way you get rid of documents is by setting them on fire and like right. putting them into a pulp, <laughs> like, people are going to be Susan. real mad. <laughs> is that what the burn bag is yeah. for? Yes. Yeah. I don't think they actually burn it. They used to burn it, but you put it like gets pulped. Now they I see it's more environmental now. And ditto that, uh, you know, that they use that program to uh, safe delete stuff. You know, that's how you should be deleting your say, emails. Though, one, All of you out there. <laughs> yes. There's just one there's, there's one little fishy thing that I'm still curious about. Well, there's the matter of the two archives of the emails that were created, one on a laptop and one on a thumb drive, the laptop of which was lost in the mail. <laughs> it's nowhere to be found. And there's also a thumb drive with the archive someplace. By the way, the, the archive before stuff was redacted, so... Somewhere in the world, there are two copies of the email floating around out there. Um, but there was some question, too, about this employee for Platte River Networks who went back and deleted her server after he knew that her lawyers were served with the preservation notice right. from the Benghazi committee. And, and look, there is all kinds of stuff in there that if you looked at and said, would we have wished that people had behaved differently, including Hillary Clinton? Uh, the answer is Yes. And in none of those situations is there a whiff in that report of 
criminal intent, of direction from Hillary Clinton to do nefarious stuff. And, you know, I've read a lot of 302s over the years and a lot of indictments over the years. There's ne This does not read like a fact pattern that produces an indictment. I would just say, I mean, maybe I'm being way too suspicious with my journalist. I, don't like, I think there's whiffs of all kinds of stuff in there. But I think in this case, what the public has to do is trust that the FBI investigated it. Yeah. Now, I know a lot of Republicans on the Hill don't think that they did a very good job of it. But that Jim Comey stands by it and like, yes, and, you know, and we looked into the deletion of the email and we looked into the hammers and nothing to see here, which, you know, if you believe the polls, I would think that this isn't really going to hurt her that much and that the public's not exactly moving on. I think they've just like baked this into their assessment of Hillary Clinton. Well, I just want the, the takeaway here to be that Shane, as a journalist, is telling the public to trust the government. <laughs> <laughs> no, wait, I'm taking my journalist hat off when I do that. Hold on. <laughs> It's your choice whether you want to trust them. I don't. I take no position. Um, okay, uh, let's move on to our third segment. Uh, so Sunday marks the 15th anniversary of the September 11th attacks. Um, so I want to pose the question to the group. And you take it any way you want. What's changed and what hasn't since 9-11? Who wants to tackle that? existential, horribly <laughs> that, open-ended. That is a horribly open-ended, but also a, a worthy question. And, you know, I guess this is the purpose of anniversaries and especially anniversaries that have round numbers. It's attached. all about mattress sales. It's, yeah, it's, uh, no, it is, it is um, something that causes us to pause and reflect on deeper significance if we think there is one. But in this case, I, I really, really do. I think that the events of that day and those horrific attacks have fundamentally changed things about America's approach to the world, about our public's attitude toward America's role in the world. And it's it's worth taking a minute to step back and try and understand that. And I guess what I see as the broad arc in terms of American policy um, is that in certain ways, with respect to the part of the world I study, I feel like in 15 years we've come full circle. So because of what happened on 9-11, of course, the United States invaded Afghanistan, uh, ousted the Taliban government, went after al-Qaeda. Um, shortly after that, you know, in a complex logical chain uh, for through the Bush administration, we went into Iraq. We had 15 years of war in the greater Middle East. We elected a president, not once but twice, on a mandate of closing that chapter, ending those wars, um, removing the United States from playing that role in the Middle East. And yet, because of the way this extremist, uh, Islamist terrorist threat has evolved, he, against his own inclinations, was pulled back in. And we now have, as we've discussed on the show multiple times, several thousand troops back on the ground in Iraq, in Syria, and we are conducting daily bombing campaigns there as well as in Libya, in Yemen, in Sudan all this week, as noted in a really good story by the Washington Post. And so I, I feel like, you know, Obama came in with the public support trying to reject this idea of a global war on terror. And where we're ending up at the end of his term and 15 years after 9-11 is with a global war on terror. It's proved very, very, very difficult to step away from that paradigm for dealing with a threat that has evolved and metastasized in ways that we haven't yet gotten a handle on. 
so um you know i think <clears throat> i think it's interesting you know i was in high school <clears throat> on 9-11 and sort of hadn't sure even, rub it in uh, yeah just right saying, just saying <laughs> um <clears throat> you know and didn't even really um was sort of just developing even a political consciousness um <clears throat> let alone kind of the <clears throat> understanding about uh, historical events and, and sort of an and a, a policy understanding but I do think, um, you know, it's interesting sort of um, seeing uh, the the arc of the last 15 years uh, somewhat in, in retrospect, right, sort of coming in um, sort of midway through um, uh, sort of our, our evolution. Um, and that's uh, the interesting thing that hasn't changed um, from sort of, you know, September 11th at, you know, 9.35 a.m., um, which is this notion of never again being kind of our fundamental policy mandate. Um, and how much this, like, really simple idea has shaped all kinds of things in, in really strange ways. Um, and that 15 years later, I'm not even sure that anyone um, could articulate never what again or where or, or what does that mean. Um, and yet whenever we have national security conversations, even now, even in a presidential campaign, 15 years later, you know, uh, with, you know, sophisticated adults, whenever they're having that conversation, sort of let alone the um, you know, whatever, make America great stuff. Uh, there is this sort of sense of, of um, uh, like an aspirational zero tolerance policy towards a very particular type of violence um, at the expense of resiliency-based policy and all other kinds of national security threats. And, you know, you hear President Obama talking about his, um, you know, the number one national security concern being uh, climate change. Um, and, and I think he really, I think both he's right and has been utterly unsuccessful in making that point to the public, in part because this notion of national security being about preventing something, preventing a particular type of threat, um, that that, I, I just think it's interesting that, um you know, these 15 years later, that idea really still is, is persistent and problematic. I was 25 on 9-11, kiddo. Uh, and, uh, Rub it, it in, why don't you? Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, you know, I was probably like, you know, still, you know, a green, you know, kind of cub reporter. And this 9-11, as I talked about on the show, is what launched me into being a national security reporter. <clears throat> and um, uh, a friend of mine, a good friend of mine, Jackie Northam, who's the foreign affairs correspondent, or was at the time anyway, for NPR, uh, I was talking with her about this maybe like three or four years later, and I said, you know, God, I think I was just born too late. You know, I really wish I could have covered the Cold War and not the War on Terror. And Jackie responded wistfully like, oh, Shane, you would have loved the Cold War. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and I think I would have actually. And for me, though, what's interesting is 15 years after 9-11, when I've just been mostly focused on writing about the war on terror, I find that actually so much of what I've been writing about in the past five, six years does seem to involve more of the themes of the Cold War and nation states and powers, you know, and, and, Russia, and, and, and Russia and China and now some of North Korea. And I kind of feel like as a young journalist who started out wishing he could have covered, you know, the great game uh, of, of the 80s and 90s, which I you know grew up under and the threat of nuclear annihilation and all that exciting stuff. I kind of feel like I am getting to cover that now. And to some extent for me, writing about terrorism, it feels like something that sort of just goes on more in the background now. It feels like it's become a managed problem to a certain extent with these occasional flare-ups of domestic threats and, you know, worries about WMD and nuclear weapons and these kinds of things. But that the really... Stuff that I find the most fascinating now is what appears to just to have persisted despite 9-11, which is, you know, big countries butt up against each other and have their own interests and move about the world in pursuit of those interests. And 
What's changed? I like that. You get to be a Cold War reporter after all. Shane, bottom line, bring back the war on terror. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, one of the most delightful days uh, that I have ever had in uh, running Lawfare was uh, it was a, I, I guess it was in uh, 2013, uh, and I received an email from a woman named Jane Chong, who was uh, then a Yale law student, and Jane had um, had been uh, at, spent the summer at Brookings doing work with Lawfare and um, and with Brookings, um, and at one point in there, I had dropped on her desk this 1948 New Yorker article by E.B. White um, because somebody had sent it to me with a note that said, he seems to presage 9-11 in this. You might want to take a look. And I didn't have time to, and so I dropped it on Jane's desk and said, hey, see if there's any interest, anything in this for us. And I promptly forgot about it. Um, and Jane did not. And on September 9th or 10th, she sent me this email with this lengthy article, um, which was just, it remains one of my favorite things we've ever published on Lawfare. Um, and so I'm going to repost it on September 11th. Uh, and I want to read one paragraph from the underlying E.B. White article, and then one paragraph from Jane's uh, article. Uh, so this is E.B. White, 1948. The subtlest change in New York is something people don't speak much about, but that is in everyone's mind. The city, for the first time in its long history, is destructible. A single flight of planes, no bigger than a wedge of geese, can quickly end this island fantasy, burn the towers, crumble the bridges, turn the underground passages into lethal chambers, cremate the millions. The intimation of mortality is part of New York now, in the sound of jets overhead, in the black headlines of the latest edition. And this is Jane Chong, September 11th, 2013. White was writing at the height of atomic uncertainty, after the United States bombed Hiroshima and Nagasaki and a year before the Soviets would declare nuclear capability. Yet he leaves out the threat of nuclear holocaust and the devastation wrought between states. He leaves out the weapons and the countries that manufacture them. He leaves in the planes, the burning towers. And here is the perverted dreamer orchestrating the plane's descent into the towers, mysteriously from the premillennial miasma White conjures the phantom to be feared by a future generation. So I, I, I commend to all of you uh, both the underlying article, um, but, but Jane's uh, 2013 article on the anniversary of 9-11. Some fine writing there. Very fine writing. Yeah, the, the woman can write. Yeah. Yeah. I would, if you didn't tell me who was which author, I'd have a hard time telling you who was who. It's great. Um, okay. Let's move on to object lessons. Um, I'll go first. Our, my object today is our new studio. Well, new-ish. Yeah, we have a bunch. This is the now. I think I, we always call it the Jungle Studio, but I feel like we owe Ryan Evans of War on the Rocks another shout out. Uh, we have just uh, bought uh, the microphones that he recommended to us, and so if you if if we sound awesome today, it's not just the content; it's also our new improved Jungle Studio. 
uh, and and the cool equipment that Ryan recommended to and us. And these snazzy, bendy microphone stands. Yeah. I mean, I really feel like I feel like I'm on the radio. I know. This is you've really done. Quite, I know. Usually, I'll just say like here. whatever stupid thing pops into my head, but now I'm like, wait, <laughs> think that, this through, then this is say being it. Recorded so it's, yeah, and recorded very well. <laughs> Um, who else has an object they want to share? I'm uh, afraid for Ben to do his I'm object. Terrified. <laughs> so this is an object lesson after action report. <laughs> um, y'all might remember uh, that a few weeks ago I uh, had you as my threatened. object. I, I threatened. I told you I was ordering it that I had seen on in the you can buy anything on the Internet department a fireball thrower and that I had ordered it and would report back. Now, throwing fireballs on the radio is uh, not the best thing, but we've got like four people here, so here goes. Oh, oh my God! <laughs> and here goes again. Wow. Wow. Um, I had not seen this yet. I was not prepared. For that. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, it's a legitimate fireball, which Ben is is aiming at the relatively flammable ceiling. <laughs> which um, legitimately hit the flammable uh, ceiling. And I think you're very close to the sprinkler system. <laughs> <laughs> so with that... So I, I threw some fireballs last night. I can and for, smell. For those yeah. who want to see oh, yeah. the actual fireball thrower, we will post a short video on our show page. Wow. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> <laughs> and maybe we'll post it accompanied by Pitbull's awesome song. Fireball. Excellent. Yikes. Excellent. For the kids. For the All kids. right. Yeah. Uh, well, that's going to have to bring us to the end of the show. We have to go get a fire extinguisher because I'm smelling fumes. <laughs> I think I'm going to pass out, actually. <laughs> I, it smells like like, like, like lighter fluid and burned cotton. It smells like victory. It does. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me with the, with the Robert Duvall impersonator. I love the smell of fireballs in the morning. Oh, boy. All right. Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can find links to our show pages, or our archives, at SpaghettiOnTheWallProductions.com. Sorry, I'm still a little weirded out by the fireball here. <laughs> <laughs> like watching Ben to make sure. Don't screw up. Too. No more. <laughs> oh, you're out of ammo. I'm out of it. Thank God. Uh, I could reload it. <laughs> you, can, okay. you can follow us on Twitter and hurl fireballs at us of a different kind, at R-A-T-L Security. You can also download the podcast, of course, on iTunes, Stitcher, or the podcatcher of your choice. And when you do that, please leave a rating and review. We really appreciate that. It helps others find the show. Our audio engineer this week is Quinta Jurassic, who is new to joining the show. She's right here. Wave. Thanks very much. She's listening to our, our, our dulcet tones and our screams coming through the microphone. <laughs> uh, the show is produced and edited by Jen Howell. Our music is performed this week by Jim Comey in The Dangerous Precedents. Oh, that's Whoa, good. That's good. good. That's or the dangerous good. presidents. Yeah. I like presidents. Now, of course, our, show, our music is performed by Sophia Yan, who um, you should also not share that fireball thrower with. Sophia, armed with that, That's she would, dangerous. She would do real damage. That's a dangerous person. Sophia may have enemies who would fear this fireball thrower. Fear the Fia. <laughs> do it. Um, on behalf of uh, my friends Ben Wittes, Tamara Kaufman Wittes, Susan Hennessy, and Ben's lethal weapon I'm Shane Harris I'm the, the DC uh, fire department yeah right. exactly <laughs> thank you in advance glad I paid my taxes this year uh, we'll talk to you next week thanks for listening
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.